Welcome to the Global Payroll Association's podcast in partnership with ADP, Women in Payroll. My name is Melanie Pitsy and I'm the CEO of the Global Payroll Association. I'm so excited to run this series of podcasts to give me the opportunity to introduce to you some of the inspirational female leaders that I've met over the last 20 years within the payroll community. My co-host today is Graham Wiley, who is the Vice President Marketing International of ADP. During our podcast, we will be discussing the highs and lows of individuals' careers and find out how they have got to where they are today. So, as they say, let's get on with the show. Hi, Graham. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Mel. Uh, still on lockdown. It's early May, but the sun is now shining, so summer is coming. So life feels a little bit better. It does. Um, and we have a very interesting podcast this afternoon. Who are we speaking to? So we're joined today by Marcella Uribe from ADP. Um, Marcella started her life outside of payroll in the very aggressive sphere of mergers and acquisitions. So she makes a fantastic guest and looking forward to hearing about her journey through payroll. So um, hi, Marcella. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So whereabouts are you based? I'm based in Paris. Oh, lovely. It is. It, it, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. I've lived here for a little over 14 years and I don't grow tired of it. Not that you, know, you necessarily grow tired of a place, but I still have moments every now and again where I, I look outside and I just think, you know, this city is spectacularly beautiful. Well, I mean, I came here supposedly on a three-year expat contract more than 14 years ago. And obviously they say lawyers are not very good with math and I'm probably one of the worst <laughs> offenders of that, but you know, like, yeah. Three years, 14, what have you. Uh, no, no, no. I just, um, I, I feel in love with the place. Are you, in, are you in the center of Paris? I am indeed. So I'm sort of just out of the absolute center, you know, uh, the sort of zero mile marker or kilometer marker um, in front of the Notre Dame Cathedral. I'm probably a 15, 20 minute walk from there. I feel a bit envious, actually. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, and I can't go and see it today. So I was yeah. going to say, can you actually leave the apartment at the moment? <laughs> I cannot. So I um, have my little makeshift office. I live in a small Parisian apartment, as one would expect, you know, sort of typical uh, cozy. And I have a, a very little table that is just pushed up against a window with my laptop on it. And so I can just look out on the rooftops, which are so sort of classically Paris, right? Um, so the lookout on the rooftops, and I've been watching the uh, the leaves grow on the trees these last several weeks. So you couldn't leave the house. What so you know what what can you do? You can just get food. I, I'm assuming is is that we're a little less restrictive than Spain, where this this past weekend they lifted the restriction where you could go out and do something other than just get food. We are limited in that we can go out for no more than an hour and no more than one kilometer from our homes to get exercise. They understand that people need fresh air and exercise, but you're not allowed to go in groups. You could go with someone you cohabitate with, but otherwise you go on your own and you socially distance. And so, you know, the streets are very, very quiet. And because of the the concern about jogging and, and running and et cetera, whether that creates um, greater risk for people, they've limited that over time to say, not uh, not between 10 a.m. and 7 p.m. So people uh, people go for a run either early in the morning or later in the evening. And so, you know, I think presumably 
older people or people with young children can walk during sort of the the majority of the day without worrying about runners. So I hear, is it an American accent? I hear. It is indeed. Yeah, I I, I don't sound Parisian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, no, I'm... uh, I was born and raised in the U.S. in Chicago, which is pretty much in the the center of the country. And well, it's not. It's we call the Midwest, but it's really pretty far north. And the the winters will attest to that because it's very brutally cold uh, in the winter. There, it's very dark and snowy, and they like to say it builds character. I think Chicagoans would say that. But I'm I'm very happy to have uh, escaped those winters because I I manage them for. A good part of my life, but I certainly do not miss the weather. Well, you you uh, grew up in the U.S., so how did you get to move to Paris? I was lucky enough, actually, ADP brought me to Paris. I had always dreamt of trying to live in Europe. I had this idea that maybe somehow I could make that happen. I never really truly believed it was it would be a reality. That's why I say it was a dream um, because I'm a lawyer. I'm, I'm qualified in the state of Illinois. So how I thought that might be uh, useful or transferable to Europe, I'm not sure. And so in fact, I thought I would do it before going to law school and it never quite worked out. So when the opportunity arose, I I jumped at it. It was, I had been at a, a different division of ADP. Well, it belonged to ADP at the time. And it, we spun off, it was called Dealer Services, now it's CDK Global. And we spun them off in October of 2014. And that's how I joined ADP in the first place. And I really hadn't even been there for very long when uh, uh, an email went out to the entire legal department to say, we've created these two new roles to support uh, a newer part of our business. One would be based in the corporate headquarters in New Jersey And the other one would be based in Europe. They hadn't even yet decided where there were uh, large offices in in Prague, in Paris, and um, Amsterdam slash sort of Rotterdam. And without even, you know, thinking, I immediately replied to say that I was interested. And after going through the the interview process, uh, I was very lucky to or happy to have been uh, selected for the role. And at that point, they decided that Paris made the most sense because our European or our international headquarters was based here. And so really the key decision makers that I would be supporting were here. And so it made the most sense to, um, to move me here. And um, I, I packed up and, 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 and moved. And so you- what was that tr- transition like, Marcella, you know, arriving <laughs> in, a, in a foreign city thousands of miles from home? Um, how, did you, how did you settle in? It was tough because, to be perfectly honest, I, um, like I said, I, di- I, I didn't think about it. I didn't think it through. It was an adventure. I was excited. It's clearly the most impulsive thing I've ever done. And I have zero regrets because it's also, um, in my opinion, the best thing I've ever done. Um, but I, I didn't speak French. So I, do, I was raised bilingual. I speak um, English and Spanish. And then I studied Italian in university. So when I used to fantasize about the idea of living in Europe, I think I always thought I would be in you know, Milan or Rome or something. Um, but who, you know, who wouldn't say no to Paris, of course? But I didn't speak any French. And so while I was hired to work exclusively in English, so it didn't necessarily hinder my ability to do my job, 
it certainly made integration um, that much more difficult. I couldn't necessarily easily make friends um, because, you know, who's going to invite somebody to a dinner party if they're going to be forced to have to speak English the entire evening? It feels a lot less relaxing, a bit more of work for them. So, um, you know, and then just running very simple errands, you know, I'm a, I'm an educated woman. I'm not accustomed to feeling stupid, but when you can't form simple sentences, like where is this or what is that? Um, people will treat you a little bit like you're stupid. And so it was incredibly frustrating in the beginning. I'm not going to lie. It was tough, but at the same time, it was, you know, it was an adventure. And I did like to laugh at myself because there were often moments where I would just sort of chuckle like okay it was like you know the silly expat moment where I, I went to try to buy bleach I didn't know the word for bleach I came back with fabric softener I'm like well at least it's still useful <laughs> what am I gonna do um yeah or you know the the French bless them they're known for their really extraordinary cuisine and and deservedly so but they do eat some interesting things and so sometimes if you go to a very classic brasserie, there will be things on the menu that you might not have intentionally ordered. And if you're too embarrassed, so I, one of the things I used to always tell my visitors, I would say, don't, don't be shy about asking what it is if you don't know what something is on the menu, uh, you know, because andouillette, which is effectively tripe, is not for everyone. <laughs> not everyone enjoys that. And, or kidney, you know, it's something that appears on a menu in a very classically French kind of bistro, um, but you know, you, that might not be what you thought you were ordering. Yeah. And so you're settling in into, into Paris. It's a, it's a different way of life. It's a different language. Um, You've mentioned that you'd started in the dealer services side of the ADP business. So at what point did you come into the world of payroll? Was that around about the same time with the move to, to Paris? So were you in a new working environment as well as 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 dealing with a, a new personal environment? Absolutely. There was no constant in my life. I mean, so I was still technically working for ADP, but dealer services and you know employer services as we call it, uh, the payroll business, the one had nothing to do with the other. So dealer services is they they sold dealer management systems and this was to help um, automotive dealers or cars and boats and, and other types of dealers for to, to manage their systems and their inventory and their sales and 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 finance systems where so I, I effectively became involved in or made the transition to payroll when I arrived in Paris. So I was in a new country with a new boss and a new business, new language. There was just there was absolutely nothing that was the same for me. It couldn't have been any more different if I tried. And so coming from, from outside the, the payroll industry, what struck you kind of first as you came into that new environment, and particularly as a, as a lawyer coming into that environment, what, what sort of stood out for you as, as distinctive in the payroll world? Uh, I think I would say, no, I would definitely say that people underestimate how complex payroll is. That was absolutely uh, my first impression was feeling as though, okay, this is a lot more difficult than I understood it to be or expected it to be. And that could be also partly, frankly, 
coming from the U.S., where payslips are really rather simple, they're three or four lines usually. And then I came to France, which is arguably one of the most complex payroll countries in the world. And my first payslip was two pages long and indecipherable. I honestly had not a clue what any of those line items meant. And of course, anything that's delineated in French, as of course it would be, didn't didn't help. So I was trying to decipher not just the words, but what they meant. So um, so you, you get your first payslip uh, in French, and obviously it's difficult to to understand. But that was a long time ago now. You've been in payroll for how many years now? More than 14, a little over 14. So what what geographic coverage do you have now and uh you know what do you what do you look back on over those 14 years as as the sort of journey that you've been through we get to spend some time there but let's start with your role and responsibility now so my responsibility now is for our international business which is everything other than the US and Canada um so you know the 140 countries that we do business in falls under my remit. Now, that's not to say that we have lawyers in all of those different countries, but we are ultimately responsible for our services and and to make sure that they're being provided in a compliant manner uh, in all of those different countries. Excellent. And then so when you first came to Europe, it was to work uh, in the international headquarters. So uh, responsibility for what, just France or, or Europe? No, in fact, it was for our Global View business, which was um, it was relatively new to Europe at the time. We had sort of stood up this business in Asia, uh, in the Asia Pacific region, and decided to try to really truly make it global and bring it to the Americas and to Europe, which is why there were those two roles that were available. One was going to be in the corporate headquarters, supporting U.S. negotiations or, or uh, U.S. businesses, and another one here supporting um, the European business. And so while the role was happening here in France, I was traveling. It, actually, in the beginning, it was mostly to the U.K. We were really busy in the U.K. at the time, but pretty much anywhere in Europe, um, with clients who would come to us uh, again, as, you know, this was for the high end of the business or the upper end of the market to say, you know, it's, we're a really large multinational business. We've got employees in forty different countries, and we want you to provide payroll for us with that same look and feel, and have this platform that is connected um, across all of our different geographies but we want to have one contract. And so we want to have that negotiated either here, our corporate headquarters, or maybe in a regional headquarters. Um, And so given that we are the service provider, of course, we would travel to the client's offices and do the negotiations there with them and their lawyers. And so I was traveling a lot, almost nonstop, because it was really good times. And the fact that we had a lot of great business that we were closing uh, in those, especially in those first couple of years when I first moved here. And so while I was based in France, I used to joke that I was actually based in an airport because I was constantly on the road. Um, but, you know, it was an absolute adventure uh, every moment of it. And the people you were working with then on the client side, those multinational corporations, I mean, they were really blazing a trail towards global payroll. A lot of what you were doing in terms of 
contractual work, I mean, it just hadn't been done before or hadn't been thought of in that way. I mean, Mel, remind me, how old is the Global Payroll Association? Five, it's just about five years, five, six years. So, so um, okay, this was 2006. This was, I moved yeah. on the 1st of March, 2006. So this was very early days. So there's almost a sense of, of sort of paving the road as you're you're driving it. And I'd be really interested in kind of any any formative experiences in that process as as because you were working with organizations that were really trying to do this perhaps for the first time. So as a as a legal expert and as a partner to those businesses, what did what did you learn along the way? Absolutely. I feel as if every negotiation was a learning experience. And we were learning it together because Yes, these organizations were for the first time engaging in this way, but we were learning with them and we were adapting with them. I think a lot of times we, if we would move from sort of a service-oriented client, let's say a bank, for example, and all their heavily regulated industries asking for particular, um, making you know specific kinds of requests, we would adapt to that. But then if we move to manufacturing and they would say, well, no, we have actually very different requirements. Can you provide X, Y, and Z? And then it was really a matter of saying, yes, well, w- why not? Why, why don't we see how do we flex to provide that um, for this type of industry or this type of a client? And I think that, you know, it was just one of those things where we felt we could tell that we were growing something or building something new. And sometimes, you know, I think arguably uh, lawyers are not necessarily considered to be very creative, um, but we, we really were creating things because it was often the question of how could you possibly provide a service for us in 40 different countries with one contract? Don't we have to have one contract per country, but doesn't that, not lead to unnecessary complexity, at least from my perspective. I'm very much of less is more. Um, And so if there's a a simple solution to things, I usually find that that's the best solution. And again, we're dealing with payroll, which is incredibly complex. But the arrangement between the two companies didn't necessarily have to then also be as complex or to overcomplicate what is already a difficult situation. And so to try to find that simplicity to give those clients the comfort that, okay, well, yes, we're providing this global service and it's going to be deployed in all of these different countries to the far off regions of the world, but can we not have you know, central governance and other sort of key, key factors that gave them the comfort that, okay, ADP, this is a new this is a new service for you, but you are uh, an industry leader. You've been doing this for decades. So we're going to trust that you know what you're doing now in this particular space. And we want to look to you for that sort of central governance and, and compliance and just the way to, to manage the relationship to give them the comfort that while we were breaking ground, it wasn't something that we couldn't do. That, you know, if we had the, the strength and the history of ADP standing behind us on something that was still relatively new, it wasn't quite as if, you know, you're starting with a startup. Like we, we used to joke that we were a startup within a very established company, 
And if you're going to be a startup, it's nice to have, you know, the AD, the power of the ADP balance sheet standing behind you. So fast forward from, from 40 countries to 140 countries, tell us a bit more about your role today and, and what your, what your day-to-day activity looks like. So it's changed a lot because when I first came over, I was the one in the trenches negotiating the contracts, trying to get the deals done with our clients. And now I I lead a team of lawyers that are spread out across the globe. And so I'm I don't want to say that I'm removed from it because I'm absolutely not. I'm really connected to what the team is doing and all the different bits and pieces that are are working in, at any given moment. But it, it is different when you move from being that one in the trenches to to leading that team. And so that that is, uh, I think, sort of the biggest change for me. And part of the series, we've been talking to women uh, across the payroll industry and, and a lot of reflections on their career progression and how they made uh, step changes in, in their career. So as, as you look back on that transition from frontline um, negotiating to management and, and leadership. Um, are the people who have sort of shaped how you how you approach that, have you had a, a mentor along the way or you know, was, we've been influenced by a particular leader or they're inside the organization or outside the organization? How did you equip yourself for that progression? So I've had really wonderful mentors. Um, I've worked with some tremendous leaders that really um, inspired me and uh, that I wanted to emulate in a lot of different ways. And some of them were leaders of the business. So they were operational leaders or general managers of a, of a particular business. And, and others were other lawyers. And I took from both, I would say, because for me, it's so critically important that a lawyer who's working inside of a business, if you're an in-house lawyer, you really truly need to be a business partner. You need to consider yourself as being part of the business, not in any way sort of separating yourself in the way that you do when you're in a law firm. And I spent seven years in a law firm and you can't beat the training. It's, it's absolutely invaluable and equipped me to do the job that I'm doing today. But I find it much more satisfying to be part of the business and working hand in hand with them. And so um, that's why I say I, I, I took some sort of lessons or, or good examples, both from the business and from, from the lawyers. And I did have one particular leader that I worked with uh, on the legal side who was just one of the most inspirational leaders I think you could you could ever work for. I think I would run through walls for this guy if he asked me. And um, and he ended up being not not just a mentor but also a sponsor for me. And he really truly advocated for me and helped me along in my career. And so I'm incredibly grateful to him, not just for what I've been able to learn from him, but also the um, the the help that he's given me. And Mel, we've had a couple of people on this podcast talk about mentorship and and sponsorship. Um, it does seem to play a, a really important role in people's career progression that we've spoken with. Because mm. you you mentioned that um, 
it's almost like you went from one person to then managing your huge team. And there's some similarities with um, payroll managers that become global payroll managers. All of a sudden, you know, they they work in a, a small department and then all of a sudden it's a, a larger department that are spread all, all over the world. Um, what what were the main challenges that you found with that? And, and is there any sort of advice that you'd give people on how to deal with sort of having to deal with people all around the globe or managing them? Sure. And at least I, I did it. Uh, there was incremental changes in that when I, when I stopped or my first promotion from being, you know, the front line sort of individual contributor and then making the move to leading a team. At that point, I was leading a team, at least still across several borders, several countries, but limited here to just Europe which I don't mean just by any stretch of the imagination, because that's already a challenge. And that's many different cultures and many different personalities and perspectives and approaches to the law and to business. Um, but at least you were essentially in the same time zone. And uh, I was able to see them in person more uh, regularly so that I could really learn from them and learn about them and work with them more closely before I then expanded my scope to, um, to the global team. And, and so starting with the European team really helped me because they are so incredibly different. And it's a, it's unfortunate that I think sometimes people outside of Europe and, and perhaps as an American, I can say this, I think Americans think of Europe as this sort of one single entity, but we know that that's not at all the case. And so, you know, uh, the way that uh, a French person would approach uh, a problem would be probably really very different than how a German would approach that same problem. And I leveraged my experience from negotiating those contracts in all these different countries. And I brought that because I learned so much about watching opposing counsel and how they would deal with the problem or approach a negotiation and whether there was sort of gamesmanship or playing, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, some of these games that lawyers like to play, or you see their, the, the business, the way they would interact with each other. I brought that experience that I learned so much from to then to managing this team, to leading this team, because I want Wanted to be really mindful, and I think we—you have to be very mindful of the fact that people take in information and um, guidance in a very different way. We all sort of approach and process these things differently, and it's not that you can be the chameleon and be a totally different person for for each of them. And, and in fact, you shouldn't. You should always be true to yourself and be yourself. But you can be mindful about how you present an issue to one person or another, or understand that when they're feeding things back to you, that it's going to be in a very particular fashion and to try to understand that. And I think that will breed some trust because if you try to be you know, sensitive to who they are and how they process data and how they address problems, it will allow you to have maybe more trust, greater communication to, to get to end a job with them that way. And, and I think people will respond to that, particularly from their leaders, if they, they feel as if their leaders are really truly listening to them and understanding how they're approaching things is, um, is usually a much more effective approach. You mentioned your mentor. Um, and as Graham said, it seems that uh, with everyone we've spoken to, they have 
one person in mind that they can think of that was a great mentor. So is there one aspect or one thing that you can say that you learned from that person? Think, okay, they're so good. I, I want to teach my team this aspect. Yeah, I think it comes back to sort of building off of the idea of being a business partner. This this particular guy, he he was so he is so pragmatic in his approach and it was always about yes, we are lawyers and we can identify risk because you can find risk in anything because there's risk in everything. But don't let that stop you from trying to find a solution. So I think maybe the, the one key message that, that I learned from him that I absolutely impart onto my team is that if the business asks you for your advice, you cannot simply highlight the risks or the issues or the concerns without also attaching to that your opinion and your recommendation, right? So we are called counselors for a reason, provide counsel. It's an incomplete job if you say, well, there's risks attached to that. Or if you say, here are three options and you stop short of saying, but my recommendation would be that we go with option two, then you haven't really fully done your job if you don't do that. Um, one of the one of the earlier podcasts we recorded was with Jenny Garrett, who who talked a little bit about the challenges and opportunities for women in the workplace. And um, this is a, a women in payroll podcast, so it's a it's a sensitive subject matter. But I'd be interested in your take, Marcella, on how you feel your gender has impacted on your role, both in terms of creating opportunities and in terms of of the challenges that you've had to overcome. Yeah, and I think most women have plenty of stories and examples of things that have come up along the way. Um, when I was younger, uh, I don't want to say young because I'm not old. <laughs> when I was younger and working in the law firm, so kind of fresh out of law school, there were there were times when I would go into a closing room because it was back in the day when we would have you know printed pages all lined up, and we'd be going through the the actual hard copies of the final documents before signature, because I did mergers and acquisitions. I don't know if I said that at the outset. Um, I did you know, mergers and acquisitions for seven years in this law firm. And so we would have these closing rooms with all of these um, documents lined up. And more than once, I was asked to make copies because they were mistaking me for, uh, for an assistant. I don't think anyone ever asked me to get coffee, <laughs> but... It's entirely possible that I've just blocked that from my memory. But certainly there were times then, even as I was older and had moved to Europe and I was the one leading the negotiation, but if my sales colleagues with me and the business colleagues with me were all men, it was very, very uh, often the case that I was the only woman in the room, whether it was back in the law firm or you know with ADP doing negotiations. And that, you know, for whatever reason, the the people on the other side from the client, whether it was the lawyer or the business, would sort of look past me, ignore what I said, and look to one of the men um, at the table for an answer. And, you know, thankfully, for the most part, I worked with really terrific men who would then kind of turn and defer and say, well, you know, in fact, that's a question for Marcella. She's, she's the one who needs to answer that. Um, but 
there's there's just no question that you know unconscious or very conscious bias um, plays a big factor when you're a woman in a position, particularly to be able to say no to to men who are uh, more senior than you, um, or even if they're not, even if they're your peers, but because you're the lawyer puts you kind of in a special position of being able to to deny certain requests or say, look, we, we simply can't do it that way, that it's not always very well received. And, you know, the fact that, you know, I operate in a lot of different countries, some of which are more particularly macho, let's say, than others. And, you know, I say this coming from, you know, a Latino background, so I'm very familiar with sort of that approach to the world. Um, but it's, it's difficult. You have to work that much harder, unfortunately, to be taken seriously or to be given sometimes those opportunities or even for people to just listen to you. And it's, isn't it a shame that I think most women within management or any woman within work has actually had that experience? Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And so how now as a, as a, a leader uh, in a position to influence a, a wide number of people about how they think about these things, how they, um, how they uh, tackle the business challenges they're facing. How, how does that experience inform the things you advocate for, get passionate about, if, if it does? I mean, and maybe that's my unconscious bias is that I, I you know, or maybe consciously, I, I try to always uh, treat everybody fairly and equally. And perhaps um, and more attuned to listening to people that maybe others are kind of ignoring for whatever reason. Um, I'd, I'd like to think that it, it does sort of shape the team in also in that I think women tend to be pretty good communicators and pretty good listeners. And that is an asset when you're a lawyer. It's very much a part of the job. You really need to listen to what people are telling you to really understand what the the crux of the issue is that they need resolved, right? They they come to you usually because they've got a problem and they need an answer. They need some help, and um, and if you've been able to build that trust so that they don't try to circumvent the lawyers, um, so hopefully if you have that and you're a good enough communicator, you can not only deliver the response, but maybe sometimes it's also in the delivery itself because we deal with some really tricky issues, right? Sometimes um, we deal with some of the most sensitive things that are happening within the company. And so there does need to be that level of sensitivity in how you treat it. And, or even if it's not necessarily sensitive, but if you're telling somebody that they can't do something the way they had initially planned, um, Sometimes, you know, it's not about saying no, it's how you say no that gets that message across and is better received, perhaps. Are you, are you continuously um, assessing situations and then thinking, okay, this is how I need to respond to, you know, different people that you're, you're dealing with? Yeah, I, I am. <laughs> I, I definitely am. It depends on the situation. Sometimes it depends on the person. Yeah. So you've been involved with some of the the pioneers of, of of the industry going back more than a decade in terms of um, multinational corporations and um, progressing and interested in in your take on how 
the industry is maturing, both in terms of the way people are approaching global payroll, but also against the backdrop of the legal and regulatory environment and how that's changing? Yeah. So I do think it has evolved quite a bit. Um, I even think back to in the early days when we were first doing these um, these big negotiations with these really you know pioneering multinationals. Usually, at the time, those negotiations were being driven by HR, HR and payroll. They're usually HR, and somewhere along the way, they pivoted to procurement. And that really changed the, the tone of the negotiations and sometimes some of the focus of the negotiations and what people were really more interested in. And I think that has had a profound impact on, on how we contract for these services. But then separately from that, the regulatory environment that you asked about, that has changed monumentally, I, I mean, I hate to use such a big word, but it really is when you look at what has happened with privacy, uh, with data privacy, it is incredible. It is absolutely a game changer. In the early days of my, my tenure negotiating these types of deals in Europe, of course, the Europeans have always been very tuned into data privacy, data protection. They had the um, the European directive in place for many years. And so there was a respect for privacy, but not the focus that you see today. Since the, um, since the effective date of the GDPR, it, it has completely changed the conversation. It has completely changed the um, risk perspective and the focus on, on privacy. And what we have seen is that a couple of years on now, because we're very close to the two-year anniversary of, uh, of GDPR, that there are versions of, like, within quotations, I guess, or similar legislation um, that are being passed in all different kinds of countries all over the world, right? So this is no longer purely a European perspective or a European approach. And we're seeing sort of these mini GDPRs popping up all over the world. And we're recording this uh, early May um, of, of 2020. So um, currently dealing with the, the global pandemic situation, which has obviously driven a, a, a large number of, of regulatory changes in a very short period of time. And it's something that Mel and the Global Payroll Association have been communicating widely with with members as, as they keep up with the legislative changes. Um, do you see the, the pace of that regulatory change? I mean, clearly this is a unique situation, but my sense is even prior to uh, COVID-19 that the pace of regulatory change was was increasing um, and and is, is going to be a major uh, factor in, in the way global payroll is managed and uh, develops over the next few years. I mean, if you take your crystal ball and look forward a, a few <laughs> years, what do you see ahead for global payroll? No, I think that's right. So if we take, if we take out all of the COVID-19 related regulations, of which there have been so, so many, but if we take that out of the equation, I do think that there has been um, 
a lot more regulatory change in the last couple of years than we had seen for many years prior. And so uh, extrapolating from that, I assume there will be more. So one of the things, and it comes back to data. So I was talking about data privacy for, for a moment, of course, but I would say that if my crystal ball were correct, what I would predict is that what governments are looking at, and we've seen some examples of this already, is greater um, visibility and real-time reporting. So there was a lot of things that we would report perhaps uh, once a year or twice a year. And now governments are saying, you know, we're a lot more savvy than that these days. And thankfully, so are these payroll providers. So what we need now are monthly electronic reports on, you know, whatever it might be, X, Y, and Z related to, to payroll data. And I think that the more they have this information and the more they see the utility of it, the more we're going to see that happening in other countries. So we've seen that in a, in a handful of countries right now, but I would predict or I would expect that we would see much more of that across the globe. So if you were talking to someone coming into the industry today, maybe as a payroll manager, maybe as a payroll clerk, someone who has an ambition to, to grow a career in payroll, what sort of hints and tips would you you offer uh, to them? Don't un- don't underestimate how complex this business is. If you think you're getting into something simple, um, you're absolutely not. And it's also to the point where we were just making, it is changing. It's not stagnant. So I know a lot of us probably in the payroll industry will joke about how it's not, you know, sort of the the sexiest business in the world, but it's most certainly not a dull one. It, it really is constantly evolving and, and changing. And whether you, whether you do this um, in one country or in multiple countries, I think that there's always going to be challenges because work and workforce, and, and we're seeing a lot of that right now with COVID-19 and maybe coming out of this, we'll see some changes on that. The workforce itself is evolving and how they approach being paid is absolutely evolving. So, so shall the industry follow. I'm glad you, I'm glad you said that because there's so many people that think the payroll industry is dull or that it's not interesting and it's far, far from it. And as so, as you say, so many changes. Um, So that's good to hear you say that. I think it's impossible to get bored. I just, you know, I mean, and, and, and I'll tell you that for me, that's like the, the worst thing in the world would be to be bored at work. And I, <laughs> I have yet to be bored. And you've been, you've been with ADP for, did you say 14 years? So I've been on the payroll side of the house for 14 years. Yeah. I've been with ADP itself for 16. Okay. So 14 years is a, is a long time. And as I think Graham and I had a discussion um, when we first met that you heard that once you're in payroll, you stay in payroll. So I think that's happened to you. <laughs> yes. Who would have thought? I wouldn't have predicted that. My crystal ball did not tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> so four years going on, 14 years in Paris. Um, exactly. I'm not sure I trust your crystal ball, Marcella. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> so one last, one last look back, or, or two parts to a question. What are you most proud of uh, having achieved in your time in payroll? I think, I think it's my team. My team is absolutely fantastic. The fact that we are literally spread across the globe, and yet I've been able to 
create a team environment or a feeling of a you know team, not just you know the 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 three lawyers sitting together in Paris or the two lawyers sitting together in Milan, but for you know for a lawyer in Sao Paulo to be able to pick up the phone and call one of these lawyers here in Europe because they trust each other and they know each other well enough and really built up sort of that team um, feeling and, and trust, um, across all these, uh, time zones and, and kilometers, uh, away, I think is probably the, the, the thing I'm most, most proud of the, the fact that they work so well together and are obviously a really high performing team. They're very, very smart lawyers, but the fact that they trust each other and work well together, I know that that, that brings tremendous value to, to the business because, mm. you know, it, at some point or another, probably somebody has seen one of the issues before. And so it's easier to just reach out and say, have, have you ever come across this type of request and how did you manage it rather than trying to reinvent the wheel? So let's be efficient because that's one of our primary goals, right? We need to be as efficient as possible and efficient and effective. And I think I think perhaps Mel, uh, given given the number of payroll teams that are spread around the globe, uh, managing their global payroll, that that might be a whole separate conversation uh, for another time in terms of how do you create effective global teams and and, and manage across those. So, Marcelo, we might come back to you for a little bit more information on that one. <laughs> but the 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 last question is is kind of the flip side of that, which is you know what would what would you What's the one thing you would change over your career if you had the chance? If you go back and talk to your younger self and offer some advice about doing something differently or something you would change, what would it be? I wouldn't change anything. I might change my hairstyle a couple of times, but other than that, I swear I wouldn't change anything. <laughs> I, I, I can really confidently reflect back and think, even if there were things that weren't brilliant, sometimes you learn from those mistakes more than you do from your successes. And so if whatever happened along the way got me to where I am here today, then I'm, I'm grateful for it. That sounds like a fantastic note to end on, I think. So thank you very much, Marcella. It's been fantastic to hear and share some of your experiences and uh, you know, looking forward to feedback from listeners over the, uh, over the series. Mel? Thank you, Marcella. Um, really interesting. And it, it's um, great to see a different point of view around um, the payroll industry. So thank you for sharing um, an hour with us uh, today. No, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much. This podcast is made possible by ADP Global Payroll, giving you the confidence and transparency to transform global payroll into an engine for growth. Begin your journey at adp.com forward slash worldwide and connect with your local global expert.